Wildly mischaracterized in popular understanding, the early 20th century world of the occult has never failed to serve up a plethora of intriguing tales. From stories of New Age magic, otherworldly realms, alchemy and psychic abilities, all practiced in shady back rooms of the temples belonging to secretive societies, our imaginations have often run wild, crossing Victorian Gothic aesthetic with the lure of a shadowy underworld. This common theme has been a driving factor in the continuing propagation of one of the 1920s most famous mysteries, when a young woman seeking the entrance into another realm was found dead on an isolated Scottish island, and a series of links were uncovered tying her to some of the age's most infamous occult societies. But how much of the story is grounded in reality, and how much is the work of overactive imaginations, is perhaps as much of a mystery as the case itself. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History, Season 6, Episode 14. I'm Ben, as always. And before we start, I just want to uh, out a, a quick apology, just in case uh, my voice is a little bit croaky this week. I don't want to trigger anyone's misphonia. Uh, I do actually sort of put quite a bit of effort into trying not to do that, actually, by sort of editing out weird voice uh, mouth noises rather and stuff like that. But I had a bit of a cold this weekend and I've been putting off recording the episode until you know my voice was n- mostly better. Uh, but if it's a bit croaky or a little bit nasally, I'll, I'll do my best not to. But, you know, if it is, uh, apologies and, you know, it'll be better next week. Anyway, with that said, let's get on. Uh, this episode is called The Thin Place, Netafenario and the Occult. Three miles long and one mile wide, the tiny island of Iona sits off the southwest coast of the Isle of Mole in the Scottish Highlands. Like a small moss-covered rock poking out of the water, its largely flat surface is covered in green grass with few trees and a single 100-metre-tall Iron Age hill fort towards the centre of the island. Documented history of its occupation begins in 563 AD when the Irish monk St Columba, who at the time was fleeing in exile, landed on the island with a handful of devout followers to found a monastic community, starting what would become a long history entwined with spiritual significance for the area. Building a small timber church surrounded by simple huts, the monks lived an austere life of contemplation and prayer in an environment of seclusion and solitude, building the cult of Columba, who was busy writing down his prophecies and warning sailors of nearby sea monsters. Using Iona as a base, the monks built up a large library, becoming a centre of learning and spreading their Celtic Christian message to the surrounding pagan highlands, cementing the island as a place of pilgrimage and building the legend of Iona as a spiritual land. Its popularity increased its wealth, and its wealth inevitably drew the interest of raiders. From the 9th century on, the island found itself consistently sacked by Danish pirates and Norse Vikings, who succeeded in burning the church to the ground and massacring most of the monks, who despite this constant background of violence, were always able to rebuild as the local power ebbed and flowed back and forth between Scotland and Norway. The Middle Ages saw the Celtic monks replaced with those from the Catholic Benedictine order, which soon followed up with a nunnery on the island, along with a large abbey. Throughout this time, the importance of the isle as a spiritual body only grew once the trend for royalty to be buried there increased in popularity, drawing the burials of kings from not only Scotland, but Ireland and Norway too. Eventually, the isle was able to find peace, and a single, small village was built up on the eastern shore, linking Iona with the nearby island of Mole, that operates a ferry service shuttling islanders to and fro, including the many tens of thousands of tourists that flock to the island yearly, 
many with religious or spiritual motivations. The subtle natural beauty of the outcrop, fashioned from rock and turf, still against the thunderous Atlantic and full with historic ruins, from the ancient earthworks to the medieval settlements, and from the forgotten antiquarian well of the North Wind to the infamous Fairy Hill, Iona has emitted a magic and atmosphere that has enthralled generations of people from all over the world. A 1920 history of the island described its allure as a tourist destination. With leisure, the imaginative will be able to linger in the quiet places beloved of Columba and his followers and to spirit themselves into the dim past. The artist will discover the beauty of the atmospheric effects. The antiquarian will find fresh fields of interest. The nature lover will be absorbed in the varieties of bird and flower and stone. The rambler can wander at will over moorland and rock and sheeny sand. In 1929, the island gained further notoriety, launching its fame outside of its normal, mainly spiritual demographic, when the body of one such visitor was found, leading the press to jump on a story of the occult, digging up and building upon a legend from the darker side of the meditative tranquillity that the island had long been known for. Marie Edith Emily Nora Fenario was born in Egypt in 1897. Her father, Giuseppe, was an Italian-born academic in the field of medicine who had contributed important research into the transmission of malaria, whilst also travelling extensively. He had found a special place in his heart for the Egyptian city of Cairo, where he spent a significant amount of time dreaming of a life amongst the dunes and of dabbling in amateur Egyptian history. Her mother, Nora Edith Ling, was the daughter of a successful tea merchant from Manchester, England, who had met Giuseppe in England when he had been touring the academic institutes during the 1880s and 90s, and the pair married in 1893. They spent their first years of the marriage travelling extensively and spent a considerable amount of time in Egypt, where Giuseppe introduced Nora to the excitement and romance of Cairo, until Marie was born four years later. The promise of a happy and enriching childhood of exotic travel alongside her parents was soon whipped away from Marie when her mother died within a year of her birth, leaving her father to abandon her to her grandparents, who lived in Streatham in London, England. Timothy and Emily Ling were living comfortably enough to be able to absorb Marie into their home without too much upset, and she joined the household alongside her deeply religious grandparents, her uncle Bertram, and their three live-in servants. For the next 10 years of her life, Marie grew up in Streatham and was homeschooled there until her grandparents both passed away one year apart in February of 1908 and 1909. Having been raised as their own child, it would have been a considerable period of struggle for the young girl, who was now more or less alone in the world, with only her grandparents' significant inheritance to console her. Her uncle Bertrand took her in briefly, but within a year, Marie had been enrolled in a boarding school for girls in the southeast coast of England, in the town of Eastbourne. Her time at school cemented within her her love for literature and writing, a pastime that she absorbed herself in and would continue to practice throughout her life. After school, Marie moved back in with her aunt and uncle for a while and spent time travelling with her father in Italy until her inheritance was paid out upon her turning 18, at which time she promptly purchased her own house on Mortlake Road in an upmarket neighbourhood skirting Kew Gardens in West London. She also went through the costly process of application to discard her Italian nationality and become a naturalised British citizen, which was successfully granted in 1922. Though no photos exist of Marie, the only one commonly referred to being an incorrectly attributed photograph of someone else entirely, it was known that she appeared as something of an artistic, bohemian eccentric. 
Her long, dark hair was often worn wrapped up in braids. She began introducing herself as Netta, adorned herself with silver jewellery and was a particular fan of handmade cloaks. She also began hanging out at talks and meetings held by the Science, Arts and Crafts Society, a community that espoused the teachings of masonry and the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. In the latter half of the 19th century, the world of the occult saw a boom in interest, most obviously recognised in the rise of spiritualism, but in many other branches of alternative belief systems too. With the publication and general acceptance of several high-profile scientific theories of the previous hundred years shaking up the long-standing, pre-existing beliefs of so many, it became easier for people to begin questioning all manner of metaphysics across the spectrum, looking towards science, and increasingly, as the century drew on, pseudoscience for answers. On the other side of the same coin, technological advancements were contributing to a similar outlook, as things like wireless communication technologies and photography became more and more accessible, blurring the lines between what people believe to be possible or impossible. A new approach towards huge questions in life saw speculation, pseudoscience and theology blend together to create a new progressive way of thinking about the natural laws of the world. In Britain, a new golden age for the occult spawned a number of groups that experimented with the concepts of spiritualism, magic and the supernatural. Key amongst these groups was a society founded in 1888 by a trio of Freemasons, which they dubbed the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. In its short history, the Golden Dawn would go on to be the most influential occult society of the age, and just as it had grown out of older societies itself, it would form the basis for many new orders springing up in its wake. Highly secretive, the Golden Dawn expanded membership via word of mouth and taught initiates in the use of natural magic in order to connect with unseen spiritual realms in a philosophy that blended, amongst others, Christianity, paganism, ancient Egyptian mythology, alchemy and Freemasonry. Its membership was predominantly made up from the learned middle classes, though individuals hailed from a broad spectrum of professions, from doctors to clergymen and actors to activists, and was, rather progressively for the time, formed of both women and men. Journals, pamphlets and articles written by members of the Golden Dawn, as well as a host of other spiritualist, pagan and occult societies, flooded the late Victorian publishing houses that went some way to normalising such beliefs, which thrived in public discourse. Split into several levels, membership in the Golden Dawn began at the Outer Order, which taught new inductees the practices of tarot, divination, geomancy and astrology, whilst focusing on personal development. Once members of the Outer Order had grasped the basics, as well as written essays on the metaphysical characters of the four elements, earth, fire, wind and water, they would be eligible to ascend to the Inner Order. Here, things were ratcheted up a notch, and members were exposed to teachings in the areas of astral travel and alchemy. The Order peaked in the early 1890s with several hundred members, including several famous names from the field of arts and literature. However, it splintered as quickly as it had risen, and by the early 1900s, had shrunk back into a field of occult societies that had all roots in the original order. Marie, or Netta, as she was now making herself known, had been dabbling in several of these societies throughout her twenties, before signing up to a Comasonic Lodge in 1920, where she met and socialised with several members of the original Golden Dawn, now practising in the splintered and renamed Rosicrucian Order of Alpha et Omega. Within a few years, she had joined Alfred Omega and another group, the Society of Inner Light, 
alongside several of her friends and had taken to publishing articles concerning the Green Ray Elementals under the pseudonym of Mac Tyler. Netta had chosen this pseudonym as a nod to the playwright Fiona McClod, itself a pen name of William Sharp, who had written an opera named The Immortal Hour that Netta had developed something of an obsession with, going to see it in its year-long London run a total of 23 times. In truth, the Green Ray Elementals is a branch of magic that, like all other ideas involved throughout this period of occult revival, was vastly deep, meandering and convoluted, depending on teacher, society and temple, but generally speaking, was said to concern itself with the realm of nature, nature spirits, fairies, the imagination and of healing magic. Netta drew herself deeply into this rabbit hole, and from her writings we can see that she dreamt of a utopian, altruistic world where social ills were healed by the magic of the green ray. By late 1926, she had severed ties with all of the societies that she had been involved in and began leading a relatively reclusive life, studying esoteric philosophy and theology in her London home. Her interest in the elementals had led her down a path, seeking the knowledge of Celtic fae and the fairy realms. Aside from the production of William Sharp's The Immortal Hour that she patronised on so many occasions, she also found an interest in the paintings of John Duncan, a Scottish artist with a focus on Celtic revival. He created symbolist paintings that included imagery from across the world of myths and legends, from Greek to Egyptian, and with his masterpiece, The Riders of the She, Celtic Fairies and the Tree of Life. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, both artists had written about the Isle of Iona extensively, citing it as a central influence on their work, and writing about the importance of Scythian Moor, a fairy mound in the southwest of the island where the wee folk were wont to revel. There were also legends told of St Columba communicating with the islands on the moor, praying with hands spread out to heaven and raising his eyes heavenward. Holy angels, citizens of the celestial country, clad in white garments, came flying to him with wonderful speed and stood round the holy man as he prayed, and after some conversation with the blessed man, that heavenly band sped swiftly back to the high heavens. Documented to have had a circle of standing stones atop its low rise as early as the 18th century, it was the site of many local tales of folklore, including it being the site of pagan worship during the annual festival of Samain, and the tales cemented the island in occult lore as a thin place, a place on earth where the divide between worlds of the material and spiritual is reduced to a thin veil a place of pilgrimage and a place where those seeking the spiritual find themselves closer than ever before. Stonehenge in England is another supposed thin place and just so happened to be a place that Netta had visited in 1926 and had an experience that had profoundly affected her. It was almost certainly these influences that stirred up a deep feeling of affinity for the faraway island, a place so far yet so familiar with her own studies. It was a feeling that would eventually drive her to believe that she had once been a resident of the island in a former life. The situation reached its inevitable conclusion in 1929 when she decided to leave London and search out the solitude of the island, full of hope of finding a deeply spiritual place where she could escape the bustling city life and write in peace. William Sharp's own description of Iona gives us a glimpse into the romantic image she would have had of the island and of why she would have wanted to travel across the country to make it her new home, at least for a while. There is another Iona, and the Iona of sacred memories and prophecies. Iona the metropolis of dreams. 
None can understand it who do not see it through its pagan light, its Christian light, its singular blending of paganism and romance and spiritual beauty. It would end up being far more than a temporary endeavour, however, when Netta was found, lying naked in a field, life extinguished by the elements. In August of 1929, Netta, alongside her friend and housemaid Mrs Varney, made the arduous journey north to the Isle of Iona. The pair would have taken a train to Scotland before embarking on a series of ferry journeys, island hopping from the mainland to the Isle of Mull, and then from Mull to Iona. By the time they arrived on the small island, with its sub-150 population, it must have felt like the end of the world. At first, Netta stayed a few days with a family named the McDonalds, perhaps while she made plans for more long-term accommodation, before she waved off Mrs Varney back to London and moved into Cameron Croft with the Cameron family. Netta had not exactly travelled light and had bought not only her typewriter, but her writing chair too. Moving her furniture into the Cameron's spare attic room, she made a homely space, quiet in its solitude, far away from the relentless din of London. Along with Netta, Catherine and Donald Cameron had three children in the house, Callum, their 12-year-old son, and his two older sisters, 21-year-old Catherine and 16-year-old Mary. There was also the 16-year-old boarder, James Morrison, who was possibly a long-time resident placed in the care of the Camerons. The Camerons were used to having lodgers, mainly tourists from the mainland, but even they were a little taken aback by Netta's bohemian appearance, which would have been explained perfectly when she confessed to the family that she had come to Iona in order to continue her studies on telepathy and healing. As she settled into the Camerons, they found her no less strange. She would stay up late at night, going on midnight walks around the island, sleep in late and keep her curtains drawn constantly, choosing to burn her two oil lamps instead. Somewhat more concerning, she told the Camerons that the reason she kept the curtains closed was that she could see the faces of the patients that she had previously healed in the clouds outside in the sky. At times, she would spend days locked in her room, typing away on the typewriter, or spend hours sitting on the shore, staring out to sea and meditating in a trance-like state. Somewhat eccentric behaviours aside, Netta was a reasonably quiet house guest at the Camerons, and the family took to liking her and enjoyed her presence on the island. There was one unusual event on the morning of Sunday the 17th of November, when she rushed downstairs from her attic room in a state of some anxiety, telling the Camerons that there was a rudderless ship passing across the sky which contained a message from the great beyond. Before she disappeared out of the house, dragging her luggage behind her, heading in the direction of the ferry port. She returned to the house an hour later, after realising that no ferries were actually running on Sundays, and when she came down to dinner that evening, her manner had returned to normal, and nothing more was said about the entire affair. Later that night, Netta slipped out for one of her usual midnight walks, and the next morning, when Catherine took her breakfast to her room, she had still not returned, though the fire in the grate and the toy oil lamps were still burning. Catherine and Donald walked down to the shoreline to see if she was sitting by the sea, but when they couldn't see her, they returned home and shrugged it off. It was not so unusual for Netta to disappear for a while, after all. It wasn't until Monday afternoon, when the dark was drifting in and the evening chill was whipping off the sea, that they started to feel any real concern, especially given the fact that, judging by the clothes left in her room, they believed she had not gone out dressed in anything particularly substantial. They went out once more to look for her, but returned home for dinner, and when she had still not returned afterwards, they decided it best to raise the alarm. 
A search team was hastily assembled and they spent the rest of the evening and well into the night scouring the shoreline for the missing woman before retiring for the night and agreeing to continue the search the next day. On Tuesday afternoon, two farmers, Hector McLean and Hector McNiven, stepped out from the official search and headed south across the island to tend to their livestock, agreeing to keep an eye out along their way. As they reached the foot of the South Hills, about a mile away from Cameron Croft, they came across Netta, her naked body resting on its side, with her face staring up towards the sky. In such a small community, things moved relatively fast, and a coroner was called over to the island from Mole, who inspected the body, noting a few scratches on her feet, but no other marks, which led him to a conclusion that Netta had died due to exposure to the elements. Average temperatures in Scotland throughout November would have been close to freezing and the sharp sea winds that whipped across the Hebrides would have been bitterly cold. Netta's aunt and uncle were contacted, but they wrote back saying that they were unable to collect their niece's body and so the people of Iona rallied together to raise the money for her burial, which took place in the Graveyard of Kings on Friday the 22nd November 1929 and was attended by a large contingent of island residents. The first newspaper columns on the death were fairly tempered in their reporting, and though they referred to Netta as an unusual type who was in telepathic communication with people across the world, the details were light and the story was little more than the acknowledgement of a tragedy that had taken place in the small community. It was not long, however, before this story would begin to warp and bend into something much more peculiar, as more details, both real and imagined, began to filter into reports that would launch the story to international fame. The death of Netta had been something of a mystery, and though all official investigation was short and quickly chalked up to natural causes, it didn't take long for some of Netta's more unusual interests to begin filtering off the island, and the press jumped on the story, reporting on all the scandalous detail. The Scotsman printed a story about Netta's death on the 27th of November, and though they got her surname wrong, as well as the date of Netta's original disappearance, they seemed to have managed to include several new details that spiced the story up a great deal. A remarkable story of the death of a woman comes from Iona, the historical island off the west coast of Scotland. The woman, Miss Nora Emily Fenario of Mortlake Road, Kew, London, was found dead on a lonely hillside last week. Her unclothed body was lying on a large cross which had been cut out of the turf, apparently with a knife which was lying nearby. Round the neck was a silver chain and cross. She was a woman of extraordinary character. Miss Varney, her housekeeper at Kew, told a reporter yesterday that Miss Fenario, whose father is an Italian doctor, did not believe in doctors and was always curing people by telepathy. If people would not let her heal them, she would moan and cry piteously, but she was otherwise cheerful and happy, said Mrs Varney. Once she announced her intention to fast for 40 days, but was persuaded to give it up after a fortnight. She dressed in a long cape-like garment made by herself and never wore a hat. Several times, she said she had been to the far beyond and had come back to life after spending some time in another world. The piece also learnt from Mrs Varney that Netta had written to her a week before her disappearance to let her know that she should not be surprised if she didn't hear from Netta for a little while, as she was dealing with a terrible healing case. It also mentioned several weird stories in circulation on the island concerning strange blue lights seen in the sky near Netta's body and the strange and vague inclusion of a cloaked man, though what the man was doing, or where he was in relation to Netta's body, is completely passed over. This piece, 
reprinted in several newspapers over a few days, was also the origin of several long-held and often repeated beliefs that have become part of the story's canon. Foremost is the detail that Netta had carved out a large cross from the grass beneath her body, which was, in truth, never reported on by any islanders at the time of discovering her body. Several stories expanded upon this further by saying that Netta had been found with a silver knife in her hand, which she had used to carve the cross. The actual reports by the men who had found Netta's body did mention a knife found nearby, though it was nothing more than a relatively blunt kitchen knife and what was originally described as a few holes dug in the mud nearby the body seems to have morphed into a large cross. As the days passed, the story slowly morphed more and more, leaning further into Netta's occult beliefs, and in December, a story ran that honed in on Netta's belief that she could heal and communicate with people around the world via telepathy. A curious instance of telepathy has come to light in connection with the recent death of a young Italian lady who was staying in the Hebrides. Her father, who was a well-known professor in Milan, was suddenly seized with a violent fit of anxiety regarding his daughter. He was unable to account for his fears, yet could not shake off the feeling that something was wrong. Two days later, a telegram arrived, announcing that the dead body of his daughter had just been discovered. Miss Fenario was described by friends as a believer in telepathy, and it was thought that she might have gone to the island to receive more power to cure by mental healing. Whilst the story has undoubtedly added a dark and intriguing twist to the story, it remains questionable as to how much of what was being reported was actually true. In Ben Oakley's The Immortal Hour, Callum Cameron, the young son of the Camerons who Netta stayed with on the island, recalls the discovery of Netta's body and brings up both the knife and the cross, stating that It was just an ordinary kitchen knife, which could have done no harm to anybody. She just died of exposure, as the doctor said. It's that simple. There was no cross. She was just digging in the ground, maybe trying to get to the fairies inside. She was a disturbed woman, that's all. Nowadays, many of the details from contemporary newspaper reports form the basis of some fairly out-there theories as to what happened to Netta, despite their ambiguous basis in reality. The most grounded theory, that Netta was a disturbed woman, as Callum puts it, is not entirely without basis. Long before Netta had set foot on Iona, her friend, Dion Fortune, a member of several of the same societies that Netta had joined in her earlier career as an occultist, had also suggested that Netta had been suffering from mental health problems when she recalled their relationship in her book, Psychic Self-Defence, originally published in 1930. I knew Miss Fenario intimately, and at one time we did a good deal of work together, but some three years before her death, we went our separate ways and lost sight of each other. She was half Italian and half English, of unusual intellectual calibre, and was especially interested in the Gris-Ray elemental contacts. Too much interested in them for my peace of mind, and I became nervous and refused to cooperate with her. I do not object to reasonable risks. In fact, one cannot expect to achieve anything worthwhile in life if one will not take risks. But it appears to me that Mac, as we called her, was going into very deep waters, even when I knew her, and that there was certain to be trouble sooner or later. She had evidently been on an astral expedition from which she never returned. She was not a good subject for such experiments, for she suffered from some defect of the pituitary body. Whether she was a victim of a psychic attack, whether she merely stopped out on the astral too long and her body of poor vitality in any case became chilled, lying thus exposed in midwinter, or whether she slipped into one of the elemental kingdoms that she loved, even as Swinburne swam out to sea, who shall say? By mentioning that she believed Netta to have suffered from a 
defect of the pituitary body, she was more than likely suggesting that Netta was suffering from some kind of mental health issue, as the medical knowledge in the early 20th century had begun theorising that problems relating to the pituitary gland would often manifest feelings of anxiety, depression and mood swings as secondary symptoms. If we consider the statements made by both Callum Cameron and Dion Fortune, the episode of her packing her bags to leave Iona in a panic, completely forgetting that there were no ferries on Sundays, and that she often spent long periods of time staring blankly out to sea, it seems fair to conclude that Netta was, perhaps, showing obvious signs of some kind of mental struggle, paired with her earlier behaviour that she had seemingly turned rather reclusive in what was more or less an obsessive search for knowledge, and we can begin to paint a somewhat speculative picture of Netta's mental state while she was staying on Iona. We can then conclude the theory that Netta had gone out for one of her midnight strolls, suffered from some form of mental collapse, and succumbed to the elements. The bitter North Sea winds and nearly freezing temperatures speeding her heart rate and raising her blood pressure before confusion, hallucinations and difficulty moving set in. This theory paints a neat picture that seems to make sense and is, despite the wild speculation, entirely grounded in a scenario that is ultimately a very real possibility. However, there are some problems. Firstly, that Mrs Varney mentioned in her statement to the press that she believed Netta to have been cheerful and happy. Though, it is important to point out that just because someone appears cheerful and happy does not necessarily mean that they are truly feeling okay. Many people suffering mental health issues are able to function perfectly well in public and convincingly conceal their suffering from even their closest friends. There are plenty of other details, however, that have thrown up many more theories, all of which move dramatically away from the first theory. In the newspaper piece written on the 27th of November, the curious line concerning mysterious remarks about blue lights having been circulating on the island has thrown up at least two theories, though neither are particularly robust nor lead us very far. The first is that the blue lights were perhaps fairies that Netta had somehow conjured before her death, though the theory really ends there with no real elucidation. The other theory is that they were the lights of a UFO and that Netta had been the victim of alien abduction, her body dumped back on Iona at a later date. This theory uses the lag in time between Netta going missing and her body being found as evidence that her body had been removed from Iona entirely. Naturally, this theory has no evidence whatsoever and simply takes the one vague line from the newspaper report and runs wild with it. Another similar theory comes from the exact same sentence in the newspaper report and concerns the mention of the cloaked man. Whilst the report is vague in the extreme and mentions no particulars about the supposed figure whatsoever, many have concluded that this man must have been Netta's murderer and perhaps, even more boldly, some have tossed out the theory that the cloaked man was none other than Alistair Crowley, the famed 20th century occultist who had turned up on Iona in order to kill Netta during some kind of esoteric ceremony. This theory counts most heavily on two things, that the cross in the ground carved supposedly beneath Netta's body that may or may not have actually existed was part of a cult ritual and of a single sentence from Callum Cameron spoken in an interview given in 1989. During this interview, Callum mentioned that throughout her stay in his parents' house, he believed Netta to have been behaving as if she were being hunted. This line was never explained further, but has both been used to suggest that Netta had been experiencing some degree of paranoia, perhaps playing into the earlier theory of a breakdown, as well as suggesting that the threat was very real and that she knew that she was going to be murdered. 
either through telepathic means or more worldly signs that her murderer had arrived on the island and this was the reason that she had unsuccessfully tried to flee the island that Sunday morning. This theory obviously has several holes, not least in the gigantic leap it takes to believe that Alistair Crowley had anything to do with Netta's death. There is no evidence to suggest that the two knew one another at all, though they may well have attended the same meetings at some point in time, there's no reason to believe they had any relationship whatsoever. There is also no evidence to suggest that Crowley was a violent man, nor any real reason to suggest that one occultist would have had any reason to kill another, outside of the fear-mongering and general suspicion that surrounds popular modern ideas on early 20th century occult societies. Similar fears are projected onto many details that have found their way into the retelling of the case, such as the latter insertion of occult symbols being sewn into Netta's cape, signifying her as an elder of an obscure occult society, a fact that was completely false. Then, of course, come the theories that centre around Netta's occult beliefs themselves and her search for the fairy realm. One popular misconception is that Netta's body was found on top of Scythia Moor, one of her favourite places on the island, and one that had popular folklore connections with angels and fairies. Some believe that Netta had gone to the mound and attempted to cross over to another realm, and some even suggest that she had carved her way through, hence the digging undertaken in the turf by the night. Both theories suggest that she had somehow disappeared into this other realm and became overwhelmed by the elementals within, only returning when she was found, hence the failure of the search parties to find her sooner. Both theories struggle to provide anything beyond wild speculation in their proof. However, they do ask a question that recurs in several of the other theories, that if Iona was so small, then why was it that Netta's body took two days to find, despite it being only a mile from Cameron's Croft, and many of the islanders helping out. Skeptics of anything nefarious point out that the first day was not really part of the search, with the Camerons only doing cursory searches around their house until alerting the authorities later on Monday evening, after the sun had set. Despite her being missing for two days, any concerted daylight search had only been active for half a day before the body was actually found. Regardless, this detail was still played into several theories, as well as becoming a theory in itself as some people have suggested that Netta's death had been some kind of Wickerman-style conspiracy, with the islanders having carried out a pagan sacrificial ritual with the botched search and burial of Netta on Iona being part of a wider cover-up by the islanders, who were hoping to obscure their involvement. Once more, however, whilst this theory may be fun to consider, there was no evidence that the islanders bore any ill-will towards Netta, nor that they practised any obscure pagan rituals, nor that any of the processing of Netta's body was anything other than transparent. One last theory, which was put forward by Dion Fortune, was that rather than a physical attack, Netta had been the victim of a psychic attack. Dion had written an entire book on how one should defend themselves from such a thing, and it was her belief that Moina Mathers, the wife of Samuel Mathers, one of the founders of the Golden Dawn, who had died 15 months prior to Netta's death, had been behind the attack from beyond the grave. This theory, however, was far more likely to have stemmed from the fact that Dion Fortune and Moina Mathers had previously fallen out during a schism in societies that had seen Fortune expelled by Mathers, leading her to set up her own society. Fortune believed that Netta's choice to join her newly founded society was the reason that Mathers had decided to attack her. At the end of the day, it seems this theory is much more about occult society cliques than it is about Netta's death and naturally there is no evidence to suggest any of it is remotely true. With all of the numerous theories surrounding the death of Netta, 
it seems fair that the core of the mystery, which does remain unsolved, has become so obscured as to have been nearly forgotten. Much of what could have helped to solve the case has since been destroyed. All of the writing that Nair had spent her time poring over on Iona has been entirely lost to time, and likewise no police reports have survived. Instead, we are left with little more than a handful of newspaper reports, at times vague and at others heavily embellished, that have led to little more than a wealth of misconceptions, myths and legends that have continually obscured the story, turning it into near-urban legend or folktale. The occult angle, whilst being intriguing draw, has also done little to help, with the modern-day misunderstanding, romanticising and mythologising of earlier 20th century occult practices influencing the creation of a raft of made-up facts and theories that have no bearing on the reality of the case. With all that said, there are still questions that remain unanswered that can be asked without veering off into the extreme end of the speculation spectrum. Why did it take so long for Netta's body to be found on such a small island, with little difficult terrain? Is it really so easy to explain away? What was Netta doing out there in the cold, dark Sunday night, and why had she shown such agitation in the morning prior to her disappearance? Was she really out there alone, and who, if anyone, was the cloaked figure? And whilst many of the details reported in the papers were later chalked up to little more than sensationalist embellishment, were they really, or were some of the later testimonies from the islanders just hoping to play the case down in order to bury some of the more controversial aspects of the case? Whatever your belief or theory, it seems that everyone will likely be able to agree that the story of Netifonario is one of some degree of mystery and is nothing less than a tragedy. The story of a woman who lost her entire family by the age of 12, abandoned by her father and then left to a life of solitude where she bounced between esoteric societies before she ultimately became absorbed by her own beliefs, her only close friend, her housemate. Whilst the truth remains lost and the solution likely buried forever, it is perhaps something that with the occult coloration alongside the isolated beauty and the deeply spiritual history of the island of Iona providing a backdrop and the draw of an intriguing mystery that Netta's story has perpetuated for almost a hundred years with no end in sight. So that was the story of Netta Fenario. I think the largely embellished story of Netta Fenario. Uh, so there's a quite a lot to unpack about that and, and we'll get back to it after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Okay, wow. So where do we start with that one? Uh, it's a really interesting story and one that I think has quite a lot of parallels with another story that I'm, I'm constantly asked to do, but um, but don't 
for, for a number of reasons. Um, but I think it actually has like a lot of parallels with um, the story of Elisa Lam. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that there was like, although this is obviously fairly different in many respects, I think it also had, like I say, like quite a few parallels. So, yeah, there's definitely quite a lot to unpack. I think, interestingly, this is a case where almost all of the theories are, are completely bonkers. There's, and, and I guess, really, realistically, that, that comes down to a few things. Firstly, sort of as I sort of mentioned in the episode and, and, and the sort of driving narrative behind the episode of how, you know, the, these days we seem to have, have a, we have a slightly different view of like early 19th century occultism. Like the popularist view is that it was this kind of like nefarious, kind of dark, hidden away secret, um, sort of shady underworld when it, when it really wasn't really like that. Um, but I think that's that alongside the fact that there's an absence of any real evidence, um, because, you know, all of the evidence is either well, very flimsy and, and small in the first place, but also just completely gone. So there's no police reports, anything like that is, is all gone. So I think in the absence of any sort of things like that, if any real evidence, we're kind of left with um, just sort of the ability to riff on, on things and speculate because even the most kind of grounded theory, as we kind of discussed in the episode, even that sort of most grounded theory is based in a lot of speculation. And so I think that leads it to lending itself to, to being sort of sensationalised with all these crazy theories that are completely bonkers. So sort of going through the theories, I suppose, um, I mean, most of them are, I, I kind of write off as just, that they're, they're just, there's nothing, there's just no basis to them. My personal opinion is, is that she was probably deeply unwell and, you know, suffered some sort of mental breakdown and uh, just, just died because it would have been freezing cold. I think, you know, I don't really want to go into the detail of what I imagine happened to her that night, but I imagine it wasn't pleasant, you know, and, and and was probably involved a lot of anxiety and and quite a sad picture. But that that's my 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 theory, and I'll probably leave it there because I don't like. I, I, if you're a listener of Dark Issues, you know I don't like to really speculate on kind of like armchair sort of diagnose people too much. So I'll leave it at that. But but I do think essentially it was a story of sort of a tragic story of a a woman who suffered a great deal of difficulty in her life. And I think that's probably the long and the short of it. But I'm also not going to say that I'm immune to the fact that there are a lot of questions in this case, which are sort of interesting and do require sort of asking about, you know, and, and, and as much as I don't believe them, like I mentioned just there, like what I believe happened if you wanted to sort of put a tinfoil hat on for a second and give yourself to like the kind of wild speculation, there is some pretty crazy stuff that happened. Like like the fact that it did take two days to find her body. So now that's explained relatively easily in the fact that the first day they didn't really look for her. The first day they were just sort of like, the Camerons were just like, well, she's gone for a walk. She doesn't often come back. We'll just leave her for a bit. It was only until the evening that they were kind of worried about her because of the, obviously the weather. Um, now, I, I mean, I looked up like the average temperatures and I mean, I know the average temperatures in England in November are pretty cold. And so, you know, if once you get to the Hebrides, you imagine it being really cold. And and it was the average temperature was say very close to freezing. I think it was between like two and eight degrees. And that would have been like cel- uh, two and eight degrees Celsius. And, and that would have been um, like uh, during the daytime. You know, so two degrees being like the lowest, uh, you, basically 
probably freezing at night once you can't factor in like wind chill. So they obviously were concerned about her once it got to night time. And so they went looking for her, but I don't think they would have looked very far. And, and from all accounts, it seems that they basically just kind of scouted around the local area, like around the house and down by the shoreline. And they didn't see her, so that was that. And then they alerted the authorities and they, they put on like a bit more of a search, but still it would have been nighttime by then. It absolutely definitely would have been nighttime um, because, you know, in England, wintertime, the sun sets about 4, 4.30 five o'clock at the latest so by the 27th of november we're, we're definitely talking like 4 30 sunset and that's where i live which is the very south of england so i don't know how much different it would be up by scotland by dinner time the sun was definitely set anyway the point being that the, 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 search, the initial search would have been at night so it wasn't a big search and, and it, even if it was it was also done you know at night so really it was only the Tuesday morning that they searched for her unsuccessfully. So if you can believe that it took them half a day to find the body in the daylight, which I think is fair, like a three and a half mile on island, I think that's fair to say half a day. It actually, it didn't, it didn't really take her a long time to find her at all. But why didn't the Camerons find her during their initial searches? I suppose I just answered that if it was dark. It was night time, but there was, she was only a mile away from their house. It doesn't, I don't know. Is there something there? I, I, I think probably not. But, the, but you know, you, you read theories and you think, well, maybe. I don't know. I think probably there wasn't anything there. I think, I think it was fair play that they, they, they took as long as they did to find her because they just weren't worried about her for the first day or so. Some of the other theories, the, the, the cloaked man, I've read the sort of the, the contemporary newspaper report and it's so vague, it's unbelievable. Um, maybe there were sort of rumours going around the island and the report sort of, because basically that report was commenting on rumours that were floating around the island. Firstly, it talks about the blue lights and, and that's pretty vague in itself, but it's more than the cloaked man, which is literally given like one line which says, and like stories of a cloaked man. And they just leave it at that. Don't go into any details whatsoever. So that's been like heavily fleshed out in these sort of like theories that um, like say it was like someone on the island to murder her, whether or not it was Alistair Crowley or or not. Say so like one, the one I talked about in the episode was saying it was Alistair Crowley. And that's the one that sort of really goes over the edge in, as, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I mean, why Alistair Crowley's brought into it other than the fact that she had like a cult um, relationships with with occult um, societies is, is beyond me because he had nothing to do with her in the rest of her life. So it's, that seems kind of strange. Um, but, you know, whether or not it was Alistair Crowley or not, whether it was just, you know, a cloaked man, like, but who was this cloaked man? Was he a murderer? But then if she was murdered, why did the coroner say that she died from exposure to the elements? Uh, you know, then you're sort of like, if if you're going to sort of suggest that maybe she was murdered, then you're instantly suggesting that there was also some kind of cover up and conspiracy going on. And then you're sort of like giving yourself, if like if you're going to sort of say, okay, I accept that, then you're also sort of surely not accepting like wide conspiracies of the island trying to cover things up. I do tell you, I think it isn't completely crazy to suggest that maybe some of the people on the island, when they were interviewed in later years 
not necessarily were covering things up, but maybe downplayed certain elements because they just didn't want the story to sort of perpetuate. Or if they did want, you know, they didn't want the story to perpetuate down those occult paths or whatever. So, for example, the cross is a really difficult one to consider because nothing was mentioned by the people that found her. Um, the people that did found her, find her said that um, she dug sort of, she had carved into the grass, but they hadn't said that it was a cross. The first thing that mentions a cross was a, was a, a newspaper report that came out on the 27th of November. But where does that newspaper report get that idea of a cross from? No one mentions anything. So it's hard to say who originally said that story. So was that a rumour that was going around the islands that was then reported on? Was it just straight up made up in the press, which, you know, I don't doubt it could have been? Or was it real? And has it been slightly covered up? And I say covered up, that makes it instantly sound like dangerous and nefarious. When that's not necessarily what I mean, you know, has it been sort of like maybe just sort of brushed away by by people in latter years by them just saying, oh, you know, she was just digging in the ground. Yeah, we found the knife and she just sort of carved into the ground, but it wasn't a cross because they just wanted to kind of not have the focus be on those elements of kind of ritual and occultism. I don't know, you know, they, they might off, you know, it's a, a, a deeply religious society for a start. And it's on an island that how heavily relies on Christian tourism. So, you know, it, it makes you wonder if they didn't just kind of want those stories to be sort of swept away a little bit, you know. And, and so I feel like saying cover up or conspiracy is almost too strong of a word for what I think is potentially possible. Maybe it was something slightly more innocent than that in a way you know maybe it's like they just kind of brush in that that kind of like detail under the rug who knows you know details like that in this story are really interesting because of course all we can do is speculate but i do think they're potentially possible say so there's a lot of theories in fact all of the theories i would say are, are kind of go too far for me and 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 get a little bit wild um, you know, stories of her sort of carving her way uh, into the, the, the a different realm and then being um, overwhelmed by the power of the green elementals, for example, is like one theory. And, and, and you look at that and you think, well, I think possibly you're stretching a bit there. But there are things like the question of the cross that does sort of lead you to wonder. You know, I, I don't think the conspiracy or cover up would have stretched so far as to say like cover up murder or anything like that i don't i think that you know that's a theory that's out there and and i, and I think it's, it's at least slightly more grounded than some of them like the ufos and fairies and whatnot but at the same time I, you know it's not completely mad you know I, I don't personally subscribe to it but i wouldn't you know begrudge anyone from kind of going down that line of questioning and, and researching more into it maybe um you know because i think you know it's not completely crazy to believe that sometimes people bend the truth in order to to have to sort of shape a narrative of a story the way they want it to be shaped um you know and, and you know i wouldn't sort of put it past these people to have, have done that in later years um for, for reasons i just mentioned um like I say, I, I honestly though, my, my theory is, is 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 probably not this wild. My theory is that it's um, uh, 
just something much more like worldly than all of that. And I think, you know, like, like, like it seems when you look at her life and the people that knew her and the, uh, there are several pointed uh, statements made by people that knew her that, that, that to me suggest that she was possibly unwell, um, you know, fairly deeply unwell. Um, uh, and, and I think she perhaps went to Iona as a kind of like getaway, as a way to kind of like have this like peaceful solitude and, and do some writing and stuff. But I think perhaps, you know, the, the reclusiveness um, sort of like just, I think maybe took her um, down a path that perhaps um, she shouldn't have been walking. I don't know. Like, like you know, like I say, I don't want to get into speculation about what she what, what might have sort of gone on through, gone through her head. But, um, but, you know, as someone who, you know, myself has, has suffered anxiety and stuff. There, there, there are things that are that you read about her, like, like for example, the day that she sort of ran off to to, to get on the ferry and and leave. It reminds me of anxiety in a way, like that kind of illogical. I've got to get out of here feeling, you know, like just doesn't matter. I'm going to catch the ferry now. I'm, I'm I've got to leave, sort of thing. I, I, you know, I've been in those situations where I've just felt I need to leave the situation that I'm in, and I don't care how I go about doing that. And, and, you know, and, and that would, to me, suggest why she forgot that it was a Sunday and there were, there were no ferries. Because she would have known that, undoubtedly. So that, to me, suggests, you know, that she at least she had some sort of feelings of anxiety. And then, of course, you had the, um, you know, people, the fact that she sort of seemed to think that she was being hunted and that she could see people's faces in clouds. Um, you know, there's a lot of paranoia and and such going on there, it seems to me. So... So I, I think, generally speaking, that, that's probably what happened to her. It's, 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 but, it, but to me, it's still an interesting case. Like I say, in, in cases like this, I generally, my, my initial reaction is to kind of try and cut through the, the, the guff, you know, cut through the nonsense and the speculation, not the speculation so much, because we have to speculate in histor- historical kind of cases like this all the time, right? But to cut through the, the, the obvious rubbish so for example um the picture of um uh Netta Fenario that that's often posted about her it's not a picture of her at all it's a picture of um the, the other lady Moyna Mathers so that stuff like that you know I, I when I talk about these cases I, I want to cut through and and you know the fact that she wasn't found on Scythian Moor you know and the fact that she didn't have a knife in her hand another thing that, that people speculate is weird is that she had all this silver jewelry and it had turned black well, you know, maybe she's been wearing it for a long time. You know, it's not that weird. Um, you know, stuff like that. I want to kind of like debunk and say cut through the the nonsense. Um, but with this case, there is some stuff which I, I wanted to cut through, but I just felt actually I can't. And it, like I say, it's not so much the, the, the wild theories. I pretty much roundly think they're all m- ridiculous. Um, but it is the things like, like was the cross real or not and and not that it really means much like you know if it was i don't believe that it was an occult ritual that killed her but just whether or not it was there or not is is a i think worthy you know exercise to try and find out if it was or not like i say whether or not you'd actually do that anymore is is more or less impossible and all we've really got is the the kind of like oral um uh, testimonies of a couple of people on the island that were around at the time who said that it wasn't um but maybe they were, you know, they're, they're invested for that. Anyway, I'm not going to keep repeating myself. That's my theories, basically. Um, 
I, I feel like it's my, my thoughts on it are quite mixed actually. Um, and, and possibly really confusing, which is why I'm probably going to stop sort of waffling now. Um, but you know, if you have any theories, uh, let me know. Uh, if you think I'm wrong, let me know. Uh, you can contact me, uh, contact at darkhistories.com, uh, is the email address or you can, we're on all the socials, which, um, you know, you can find links to all of this in the show notes, as well as links to the dark histories website, which is darkhistories.com. And there you can find ways that you can contact, get involved with the discord server, um, yeah, uh, support or buy the books or buy merch or t-shirts and stuff, or, or just kind of like, you know, uh, check out what's going on with the podcast because it's that's basically the central hub so yeah otherwise uh that's about that the next episode is going to be not quite two weeks because say this one came out um a little later than usual because my say i was trying to wait for my voice to recover a little bit um before i got involved and recorded it so hopefully um my voice has held up not too bad and it hasn't like i say driven anyone too crazy uh, yeah so let's say the next episode is going to be like about a week and a half away now so I, i'll see you then Until then, take care, sleep tight.